Okay, let's uh, be honest with ourselves for a moment. Christmas can be a little dull. (laughs) Isn't that right? Christmas can be a little dull, or at least uh, Christmas can be a trifle anticlimactic. Uh, can't it? Years ago, we might have been excited about this time of year, uh, but as we've got older, some of the novelty of Christmas may have worn off a little bit. Maybe, for instance, we used to love the Pogues uh, fairy tale of New York, but now having listened to the Pogue six million times, even that is wearing a little thin, isn't it? Christmas can be uh, a bit... Dull, a bit anticlimactic. Well, tonight, this is the hope. I hope that the Holy Spirit this evening is going to jettison us, throw us out into Christmas week more enthused. Because what we're going to do just now is go back to the realities of what was happening on that first Christmas. We're going to think about the fundamentals and some of the very basics of what was going on. And as we do that, hopefully we're going to be reminded, what is the, uh, what does the song say? Hopefully tonight we're going to be reminded just why this is the most wonderful time of the year. Friends, I'd ask you to turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, and let's consider first of all the self-revelation of Almighty God. The self-revelation of Almighty God. Okay, tonight, what we're going to do is we are going to put all of our energy, all of our effort, all of our attention on just one solitary verse. Okay? Um, So our text, if you like, is verse 14. So let me just read how it starts. So, you know, follow me. Verse 14, that's where all of our attention is going to be focused on. And it says this, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. See this first point? And this first point, I just want us together to consider two words, the first two words. The Word. So if the Word became flesh... And dwell amongst us. What's the word? What does that mean? The word. Well, the Greek term logos that's used there, it would have been, I think, instantly familiar to a lot of John's first readership. You see, in thought, logos, the word, was seen as a sort of, a kind of impersonal force. Uh, yeah, a, a, a sort of all-consuming, rational principle. Maybe something like, the, the Logos to the Greeks, maybe something like the soul of the universe, or something trippy and kind of hippie and almost kind of new-agey like that. Logos, the soul of the universe. Now, here's the thing. John's not basing his thinking there on Greek thought at all, is he? Because how does this gospel start? Look with me. How does verse 1 start here? Do you recognize it? Hopefully you do, do you? In the beginning. What's that? I mean, that rings bell. In the beginning. What's John thinking about there? In the beginning. He's thinking about 
Genesis, isn't he? So do you see, where's his mind? His mind is not actually in Greek thought at all. His mind's in Jewish thought, if you like. His mind's in the Old Testament, isn't it? He's thinking about Genesis here. So the first thing that we've got to do, like we're trying to work out, what is the word if it's become flesh? First thing we've got to do is work out, well, how did the word function in the Old Testament scriptures? Well, everyone in here, all of us have seen family fortunes at some stage or other, haven't we? You can remember, I don't think it's on the TV anymore, but it used to be on the TV. And so we all know what family fortunes is. So if we were to ask a hundred people to describe the God of the Old Testament in one word, what would be the star answer? Maybe they would go for the God of the Old Testament is a powerful God. Wouldn't they? Or the God of the Old Testament. Star answer is that he's a mighty God. Or something like this. Well, here's the thing. Very often in the Old Testament, it was the word of God that demonstrated his power and his might. The word did that. Now, do you see what I mean by that? Now, think of God in creation in Genesis. How does God create the heavens and the earth? Like, do you remember Jesus at Cana, Galilee? Do you remember the wedding and he turns water into wine? You remember that miracle? How does Jesus do that? He wills. He just wills it. Wills the water to turn into wine. Is that how God created the heavens and the earth? Is it? It's not. Is it? What did he do? He spoke. Listen to Psalm 22. Love how Psalm 22 puts it. Says this. It was by the word that the heavens were made. So you're seeing that the point here, God acts in power in creation. How does he do it? He's, it's actually his word that does it. But then, wait a minute, Old Testament. How does God reveal himself to humanity? How does he communicate how does he reveal himself in the Old Testament scriptures? Does he draw pictures? Does he draw images? Illustrations? What does he do? What do you hear all the time throughout scripture? And the word of the Lord came to Moses. And the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. And the word of the Lord... You see, he speaks. He creates through the word. He reveals himself through the word. The last one here, though. Now think about this one. In the Old Testament... How does God very often deliver people from harm? Do you know what? It's the same thing. Very often it is by his word. And I wonder if you noticed it. Because we've just sung it. Psalm 107 says this. God's word went forth with healing power and kept them from the tomb so you with me so far? Do you see the point that we're dealing with here? God, this awesome, awesome God, this God of power, he acts in might. How? The Old Testament? It's through his almighty word. It's Logos. So we get a picture of this. Okay, what's the word? What is the word? We see it in the Old Testament. We see it's God's act in power. But... If we're going to understand what John is talking about in verse 14, something else that we've got to do, isn't there? We've got to deal with what he says prior to verse 14 in this chapter. 
Now, I noticed um, this week that uh, a lot of people are very, very excited about the fact that uh, Benedict Cumberbatch's uh, Sherlock, there's going to be a new series of this uh, over the festive period, and apparently this is a big deal, and lots of people are very excited about that, and I know that some of you may be excited about that uh, in here. Now, if Sherlock was in here just now, and if he was dealing with this, there might be a deduction that he makes about verse 14 here. Because think about what we've just been told, that in the beginning was the word. Now, what does that mean? So that means that before anything was created, before there was anything at all, the word existed. Yes? Logos was there. So do you see the deduction that Sherlock might make from that? Sherlock might say, right, if he was in the beginning, if the word was in the beginning, the word can either maybe be divine, you see? He was there before the creation of anything. So he might, the word might be divine, or at least the word might be with God in the beginning. If he was there before the creation of anything, right? One of the two things. Well, what does John tell us here as the verse continues in verse 14? (laughs) He says to us, to Sherlock, he says, it's not one or the other. It's both. The very fact that the word was both with God and was God. And I think if we're going to understand the incarnation at all at Christmas time, we need to deal with that. So, So wait a minute. The word was with God. Now, I'll say this. I think perhaps there's the danger that we get this idea wrong, that the Word was with God. If if we were to talk about this later on, what do you think it means that the Word was with God in the beginning? Like, I think very often we think it means that the Word was sort of standing alongside God, existing alongside God before the creation of the world. And I want to say to you tonight, it's infinitely better than that. The preposition that John uses there, that the word was with God, more often than not in the Gospels, it portrays a sense of intimacy. You see, like Jesus uh, says, every day I was with you. You see, there's an intimacy there. Do you see what that means? That the word was with God in the beginning. It does not just mean that the word existed side by side with God. It means that the word was standing face to face with God. You see, not just coexisting, but existing in this beautiful, this special, this loving, this intimate relationship. Do you see? The word was with God. And then the other side of it. What is it? The word was God. And you know uh, uh, where I'm going to go with this, I think. You know that the Jehovah's Witnesses, amongst many, don't like that idea at all, do they? They come to your door, and they will come bearing John 1.1, and they will say to you that this is not what John meant. John didn't mean that the Word 
was God. Can I just make this as clear as I possibly can? That is exactly what John meant. If John didn't mean that, there are other ways in Greek that he could have expressed himself, and yet he doesn't. Do you see what it means? It means that the word is not an it. It's a he. That this logos, that this word that we are talking about, this activity, this power of God throughout the Old Testament and creation, revelation, salvation, it's a person of the Godhead itself, a member of the Trinity. Do you see the word? The very Son of God himself. Now, what do we, what do we do with this? Like tonight, you and I, what do we do with this? How do we apply those truths? How do they affect your life and my life just now? Well, I ask you this. Isn't it true that if uh, people in our lives think about God at all, they think of God as being far off and distant? Isn't that right? Um, people, they think about Aleppo and they think about a, a cancer diagnosis and they think if God exists at all he's distant, he's uncaring, he's far off I was reading about George Orwell this week there's, a, there's an instance in George Orwell's life uh, where Orwell <laughs> he runs away basically he runs to a remote Scottish island why anyone would want to do that I don't know but he runs off to a remote Scottish island why? to, to get away from London life it was getting him down don't people think of God like that? he's away over there you know he's distant he's, he's, he's uncaring he's keeping himself to himself and actually don't we as Christians sometimes think like that? We think, yes, you know, God wants our obedience, but he doesn't want his involvement in our lives. Well, think about what we're learning here in John. Like, think about what this term is. What's the term? God's word. What does that show you? It shows you that it is part of his very nature to reveal himself. You see, like, throughout history, what has God done? He's spoken. He's actually communicated. He's spoken to humanity and he's done it through his son. And I think that's wonderful for us and here as Christians. Because you see what it means? It means that at this point in your life today, this week going into Christmas, then into 2017, what does God want? He wants to reveal more and more and more and more of himself to you. That he's not a distant God. He's not an uncaring God. We see in Scripture from beginning to end that God is a God who speaks. Speaks to his people and he speaks how? Through his almighty eternal word. So we see the self-revelation of almighty gods. Okay, there's a second thing that we need to wrestle with. And a note here, and that is the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are, uh, obviously, here's 
talk about stating the obvious. There are amazing truths in the Bible, amazing truths in Scripture that God has a place prepared for his people, that there is reconciliation available with Almighty God through Christ. There are amazing truths in the Bible. Surely up there amongst the most precious and amazing truths is what John goes on to say next in this verse. But so incredible a truth that what John, I think, has to do is almost break it up and tell it to us in a couple of different and special ways. I remember a few years ago, and I'll, I'll preface this by saying it was not this church, but a few years ago, uh, at the end of sermon, <laughs> I was rebuked by a lady in the congregation. Uh, it was a congregation up north, and it was one of these congregations that as soon as the benediction is over, the congregation are out of that building uh, as quickly as they can go. But I've got to beat them to the door. Okay, so I finish the benediction and I get to the door and then there's this almost a kind of formal process of shaking everyone's hand and usually they're out as quickly as possible and it's just, thank you, thank you, thank you. But not with this lady, not with this lady. This lady, she tore strips off me because I used the word bloke in, oh, in the sermon from the pulpit. I used the word aunt. I didn't know this. But you are never to use the word bloke in the pulpit. It is a crude word. And apparently it is a slang word. Well, maybe, you know, the woman was right. Maybe, or maybe, maybe I should have directed her to John chapter 1. Because do you, well, think of what John says or what he doesn't say. John here does not say that the word adopted humanity, which would be very correct. And he doesn't say that the word assumed manhood. He knows that by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, if he puts it like that in a very correct way, he knows that it's going to lead to misconceptions. So do you know what John does? He, he uses what is almost a slang term. Here. Now, do you see what it is? Look at it. He says that the word became, look, what's the word? Flesh. It's the word socks. In the Greek, it's a earthy term, really earthy term. Flesh. What does it mean? It means that the word of God, the logos, it took on every single element, bar sin, of what it means to be a man. The word became flesh. But then notice the second way that John unpacks the truth. So, so you're following me in, in verse 14, are you? Do you see it? The word became flesh, next bit, and made his dwelling among us. Now, Paul did a sterling job. He came up and he read beautifully this evening from Exodus 33-34. I made you work tonight. It's a long reading. Um, but maybe that had you scratching your heads a little bit, friends. Because it's, you know, maybe you think it's not, this is not exactly the, the 
Christmasiest of uh, portions of Scripture. Uh, where is Isaiah 9 or something like that? Why are we in Exodus? I'll tell you why. I, I, I firmly believe that Exodus 33 and 34 is what the Apostle John had in his mind when he is writing the prologue to his gospel, when he's writing chapter 1 here. Because did you pick up on what was being said when Paul read Exodus 33 and 34? Did you see what it was about? It was about the tabernacle, and it was about the tent meeting. What are these things? Where Almighty God, prior to the temple, where he would meet with, but also dwell amongst his people. Isn't that right? Tabernacle, tent of meeting. This is where God resided amongst his people. Now, do you see, do you see that that is what John has in his mind here? Because look at verse 14. What's the word? It's the same word he uses. That just as God dwelt amongst his people in the tabernacle in the Old Testament, what is said here? In Jesus Christ, what happened? What does he say? The word became flesh and tabernacled amongst his people, amongst mankind. It's the same words, the same idea. And I think if you would dwell on it and if you'd wrestle with it for a moment, you would see that that is absolutely incredible truth there. The very fact that this almighty sovereign God so keen to show himself to to mere humans, what happens? That he comes to amongst us, resides, lives, dwells with us. This logos active all throughout the Old Testament. What does he do but make his home amongst humanity? Isn't it incredible? This word becomes flesh and dwells amongst you and me. What do we take away? How do we apply this? Hmm? Well, friends, at this time of year, I, I think there is the temptation, surely, for people to focus only, solely, on the humanity of Jesus. This is, this is surely true. You know, mothers at school, or your colleagues and friends and the people at university... Tell me if I'm wrong later on. But maybe they believe that Jesus is a historical person. I mean, surely they do. But maybe they believe that he's a historical person. They might believe that. If they believe that, that is all they believe. But I'm asking you, do you not see the truth of it in these verses? I want to ask you this question. Who... Was the child born at Christmas? There, in that manger, was the very Logos of Almighty God. The little baby, crying these cries of a newborn. Into the Bethlehem night. Who's the little new baby? Who is it? 
but the pre-existent creator, God. Now, does that not color our approach to Christmas? Because it shows us what we must do in amongst the presents and the music and the family and the festivities. Don't we quake? Don't we bow? Don't we fall and worship this God for what he's done? For what happened at Christmas? The word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. That is surely one amazing, almighty truth. So we see the self-revelation of Almighty God, and we see the supremacy of Jesus and who he is. The, The last thing that we need to note here is actually the salvation of sinners. I mean, if you were doubting that the tabernacle was in John's mind as he's writing these words, then the doubt goes, doesn't it? If you read on. Look at verse 14 with me. Let's, let's, let's close it. Do you see? The word becomes flesh and makes his dwelling among us. We have seen what? His glory. His glory. It's something that was integrally connected to, in the Old Testament, the tabernacle. Isn't that right? She's thinking of the tabernacle. Now, in Paul's reading earlier on, what happened with Moses? Did you notice it? So Moses had the glory of Almighty God pass by. And Moses sees in this, he learns two things about God. Learns, one, that God is a God of abounding love. Is how the NIV puts it. That's the first thing. Bounding love. Second thing, that God is a God of faithfulness. Now, I want you to take those two things and put them in your pocket for a minute. God, Moses learns in the Old Testament, he's a God of abounding love and faithfulness. Now, what is said of Jesus' glory here? Verse 14, basically it is that John and the disciples, they see something of God's glory in Jesus himself, that through the miracles and the signs and the wonders that Jesus performed, and then more especially in his death, what happens? That the incarnate word manifests something of the sheer splendor, magnificence, the sheer glory of God manifests it, Jesus, to humanity. And that's epic. But how is the glory described here? Do you see at the end of the verse? Take the two things out your pocket again. Because it's the same two ideas. Moses saw the abounding love of God. He saw the faithfulness of God and the glory. Now, we are told that Jesus comes in. The glory, what is it? It's full of grace and truth. Same ideas, similar ideas. But here's how I want to end tonight. I'm going to ask, does those, do those two terms, grace and truth, 
not remind us of why all of this happened? Because we make a mess of Christmas so often in the church, don't we? It's like we go in to the stable, we see what's happened in the stable, and on the way out we stop at the stable door. Do you see what I mean? It's like we view the incarnation in a vacuum. And yeah, as a church, we marvel at what's happened. But it's like we never properly ask why it happened. And don't those two terms there remind us of just why Christmas took place? Why did it take place? Jesus came full of grace and truth. He came to save sinners. He came full of truth. He came to tell us the truth that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. To tell us the truth that we're all facing condemnation. But he comes full of of grace as well, don't you see? Full of the ability, the desire, the will to, to deliver people from their sin. And when you consider all that we have said and all that we've seen about this verse, doesn't it stagger you how that salvation would be won? That the eternal word of God, think about his activity throughout scripture and history, the eternal word of God, he would suffer for us. The incarnate word would live this perfect life, a sin-bearing death. But who was that on yonder tree? Who was it that was in agony at Calvary? It was the eternal Logos of Almighty God hanging there for us. So friends, I end with a question, and it's this simple question. Where are you with this, this Christmas time? Do you trust in this God? Have you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the incarnate word of Almighty God? You trusted in him for the forgiveness of your sin, have you? If so, you are not telling me tonight. That Christmas is dull. Christmas isn't dull. Is it, friends? I mean, we go out from here and we go out rejoicing in what has been done for us, don't we? In fact, you know what we do? We go out from this tonight and we go and tell people this. Don't we? Like we tell our kids, we teach our kids the incredible nature of the incarnation. We go and tell the people at work. And we take that bold step, we go and speak, we tell the world what has been done. Because what's the truth of Christmas? What is it that we are actually celebrating? Ah, marvel at it. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling amongst us. And why? To save us, to save you and me, and to save us from hell. Let's pray.